welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Two years ago, when I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, Mount Shasta was with me for weeks. You can start seeing the mountain 100 miles to the south, and it continues to dominate the landscape all the way into Oregon. This volcano is by herself in the landscape, and with year-round glaciers, she looks like the Mount Fuji of California. For centuries, Shasta has been a destination for mystics, sages, gurus, and explorers from all over the planet. Shasta is known as one of the seven sacred mountains on Earth. The mysteries surrounding Shasta are endless. There have been expeditions to find the hidden city of Lemurians within the mountain's lava tubes and reportings of alien landings. But the most common reason that people go to Mount Shasta is to be in the presence of a very palpable energy vortex. Native Americans hold that Shasta is inhabited by the spirit of Chief Skell and that the summit is a portal to other dimensions. In 1874, John Muir, the famous environmentalist, said... When I first caught sight of the Mount Shasta over the braided folds of the Sacramento Valley, I was 50 miles away and on foot alone and weary, yet my blood turned to wine and I have not been weary since. Marcus, my 19-year-old son, and I decided that this was the summer we were going to attempt to reach Shasta's summit at 14,179 feet. Marcus's friend from high school, Ian, decided to join us we set off on an adventure of a lifetime. After a five-hour drive from San Francisco, we finally get to the Clear Creek Trailhead on Mount Shasta. I've wanted to do this for a long time, and I think it will be an adventure. I don't think it will be too physically grueling. I think it will be Maybe perfect. not for you. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. I think each of us will bring something to it. Ian's done some climbing in Alaska. You've hiked a lot, and hopefully I'm in You're the shape fittest. enough to keep up with you guys no, you guys you're definitely the fittest so maybe the only thing that i'm worried about marcus is like we try to put a lot in two days i mean it seems insane so day one like we're gonna we're gonna summit one of the highest mountains in california and then day two we're gonna be um fly fishing i mean i don't know it's like is it too much i don't know i think if we just play it by ear it won't be too bad um i think the hike should be a challenge, but I don't think it will be too intense to the point where we won't be able to fish tomorrow. I think that it will be a lot in two days, but it will be a fun two days. I'm excited. It's hot today. It's like 105, so hopefully it gets cooler as we get to our base camp. I'm so excited to have a base camp. It makes it sound like we're going to Everest. That first evening, we hiked for a few hours to get to our base camp at 8,600 feet. The view is incredible. We went up just a little bit higher to pitch our tents. It's amazing. The sunset kind of going to the clouds on one side is just bright orange and pink. And behind us, just kind of a gray, dense fog. It looks like there might be a small fire from the west. Well, we'll see, or east, actually, sorry. So why do you think, why for you is it important to get the hell out of the city? Like, why? Until you get out here, you forget how important it is to be out in the wilderness and how different a feeling it really is. It's almost a culture shock in a way, like going to a different country. It's just a completely different surrounding. And it's really amazing just to have this open air. The, I mean, the air right now is really cool and thin, so maybe that's why I'm 
thinking of the air. But other than that, I think it's just important to kind of get out of the chaos of the city. I think it's definitely something I've always loved to do, to get out into the wilderness and out of the city. I feel good. I'm, yeah, I'm like ready. I'm ready four for, miles. Yeah, quickly. I'm ready for tomorrow. I'm yeah. excited. I'm excited too. Um, the sun's are, sun is already setting. There's not too many bugs out here, which is nice. Our tents are set up. It looks like a comfortable camp spot. I love excited for tomorrow. Yeah. I'm a little worried we might be waking up too late. I just don't know how long the hike is going to be. I hear some people waking up at three or maybe even midnight. Yeah, no, we're not. We're not crazy. The next morning, we get out of our tents at five a.m. and make oatmeal and a strong cup of tea. So, how do you sleep, Marcus? I heard you you're making so much noise on that air mattress. It was insane. (sighs) Yeah. Mm. The air mattress I had was very loud. I think it kept Ian up too. I probably fell asleep at 11.30. Woke back up at 2.30. I just couldn't fall asleep. I think maybe the thinness of the air, I felt like I had sleep apnea. I kept jerking awake moments after falling asleep. I heard asleep. you, like, the, between the sound of the air mattress squeaking and then you're like, <gasps> I felt bad for you. Yeah, and Ian and I were also fighting over one pillow, so that kind of carried on throughout the night as well. I didn't sleep either, not because you were keeping me awake, just because I think that I was just so pumped up and also nervous. Like, I'm nervous for today. The mountain suddenly at base camp, when you look up, just feels kind of terrifying. Like, did you wake up and see the stars? Yeah, I did see the stars. That was probably the most stars I've ever seen in my life, which did keep me up as well. I mean, really after the moon went down, because the moon was so bright and kind of took up the entire sky facing the reality that we actually have to climb this thing today. And it feels a little more intense than I had imagined. Let's just go. I'm ready. Let's go. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. We finally begin the actual ascent of this massive volcanic mountain at 6 a.m. So our goal this morning, (laughs) which has taken a long time, was to get to this thing called UFO Rock, which we can now see just below us. It is hard walking in this scree, shale, talus. There's all these different frigging names for this rock, but basically it's it's this... Yeah, describe it. Quite honestly, I'm exhausted right now. I'm also feeling... I mean, one of the things is not only is this basically a 90-degree face we're hiking up through what feels like mashed potatoes. You go two steps down every step you take. So far, I've been... Having to, I'd say after 9,000 feet, every 10 steps I take, I have to take a nice long breather. It's just so hard to even get up, like, anywhere. There, were, At one point, there was a um, little ice patch about a mile down from UFO Rock, and it, I really could never seem to just get to that ice patch, and I kept setting that as a marker and trying to get there, and it just felt impossible. Did you want to give up? Uh, right now, I mean, no, we're too close to give up, but I'm feeling lightheaded, a little dizzy, very dehydrated. I ran what out keeps of you going? Water. What keeps you going? Um, I'd have to say the Trader Joe's fruit snacks. <laughs> right but mentally, like, it's a mental game. Like, you were doing, you were, like, counting. When I, I could see you above me, you were, like, going one, two. Like, what were you doing? What counting? What kept you going? At first, my goal was to count to 100 steps and then stop and take a break. Usually I can make it about 13 steps, usually more like 10. 10 was a good realistic goal. And, um, you know, it made the four-hour hike feel like three hours and 59 minutes. One of the things that we did have, which turned out to be useful because we ran out of water, um, 
with the ice axes, which you use to like shave. It was like Hawaiian ice you used to shave the glacier and shove it in the bottle. That that was pretty effective. Yeah, unfortunately, I ran out of water at nine thousand feet and had to fill up both my bottles. I think you and Ian had at least half of, half of your water left, so still a liter. So I feel quite dehydrated. I've been bumming your guys' water a little bit, but I don't know no, what fine. I can do for. Don't now. worry about it. Talking of which, it kind of felt like so far on the hike, Marcus. I don't know if you felt this, but like, like we switched roles. Like you kept asking me if I was okay, whereas before this, it was my job to take care of you, um, as your dad. This time, you kept coming and saying, "Are you okay? Everything okay? Are you doing fine? Did you notice that?" Yeah, I'd say, I mean, to get to where we are right now, just above these rocks, like it's taken leadership from each of us. And I think from Ian kind of just setting the pace, a fast pace, like getting us up the first couple thousand feet of elevation to you really just taking up the tail end and just pushing us so that we wouldn't stop. I mean, I think, and then like all of us just kind of braving that part where there was just absolutely no trail. The trail disappeared and we just started climbing. I mean, that was just... I mean, that was just straight vertical rock where we're just climbing that. I mean, right now you're laughing and giggling, and I mean, so I'm I'm impressed with your energy right now. <laughs> well, let's keep going. Uh, okay. We've got to get to the summit. Yeah, maybe just one more smushed banana. <laughs> After seven hours of scrambling and climbing up scree and boulders, we finally get to the summit of Mount Chester and write our names in the register. So Marcus, we made it to the summit. Nice job. This was hard until the last, I mean, we had to walk through that ice at the end, but mostly it was just a slog up near vertical. So what does it feel like? I think what I've seen so far is the summit is amazing and beautiful in its own way, but every step along the way has been equally incredible and breathtaking. So I think the summit isn't really what I had expected it to be in comparison to all the amazing things I've seen along the way. It's been amazing. I mean, just the clouds. Just I've never seen clouds like right now at 14,000 feet. This is the highest I've ever been. Um, and, and what you get is just this perspective on like the weather, like clouds are being made, the glaciers. The, it's like, I don't know, just something about mountain climbing is... If- it feels like you've been transported to someone's dream here. It's really not like reality at all. Just the clouds act differently. The climate is just, it, it, it's completely own thing. And I really have no idea what's going on, but it's amazing. The rainbow, the clouds, the temperature, the breeze, the glaciers, the jagged rocks. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely, like, for me, it feels like I'm in Narnia, like the Lion Witch in the wardrobe. It feels like an alternate reality right now. Um, I mean, even just having these crazy wasps and the butterflies and the rainbow and looking down, like, when you see the teeny specks of... I mean, you can't even see where our tent is. It's so far away, <laughs> which makes me nervous for going down. Have a <coughs> sense of... Oh! Sorry, Marcus, this is a lot yellow, the yellow jackets. There's, Jesus. Yeah, there's like I don't know. Sorry, there's no, no, no. There's thousands. Where the hell do they come from? I don't this know. Is I, we just saw thousands and thousands of monarch butterflies that must be migrating up here, and I've never seen more in my life. There's must be a wasp nest because there's all these yellow jackets <laughs> flying around, and they're 
It was time to leave the wasps in the thin air and start the long descent back to base camp. It only took four hours to get down, but it took about ten years out of the life of my knees. It was basically surfing shale. Yeah, I think one thing about the descent that was really remarkable to me was how far we went up. I mean, we didn't know how steep it was, but now that we've come to the bottom, like I look up and I'm like, holy crap, how did we... I can't even believe we did it. I think there's no way in hell that if anyone paid me any amount of money, I could ever do this again. Just not being able to see the thing in its entirety because of the steepness and the ridges kept me going. And now, like, the coolest thing is, I don't know if you can hear it, but, like, the thunder um, and it's starting to rain. I love the smell right now. It's just incredible of the the trees and the the sand and the, there's lupine and just I don't know like we just got out in time like I'm looking up and the the mountains are like black and uh, with the with the clouds I'm glad we got out when we did but I just happen to love the sound of the thunder yeah I agree it was great being here while we were but I'm ready to get the hell out of here now <laughs> and Marcus guess what we are well, not only that, but here's the surprise. We're not going to stay in the tent tonight. We're going to go to the McLeod Hotel. Oh, thank God. I'm so tired. I thought you'd like that. Because tomorrow morning we've got to get up super early and go fly fishing. After hiking for 13 hours, we make it back to the trailhead and then drive through the forest roads to the small town of McLeod, California, where we stay at the 103-year-old McLeod Hotel. It's also been one of the most transcendental days ever. Being in the clouds and witnessing weather being made was insane. It's the difference between watching clouds and being in them as they form. We wake up the next morning early, so sore we can barely make it down to breakfast. We meet Stephen Fry, our fly fishing guide, and head down to the Nature Conservancy Reserve on the McLeod River. Stephen, how's it going? It's a beautiful day. And you can hear the birds and the bugs chirping. And uh, what are you doing right now? I'm tying up our setups for the day, and we're going to go fly fishing. I'm excited. Oh, I'm excited, too. We saw a bear up close and personal. It even stuck around. And we'll probably see a couple rattlesnakes, elk tracks, deer tracks, and hopefully a couple big brown trout. How much time do you spend on the river in the summer? Oh, gosh. During the summer, I'm at least on the river 20 five days plus a month amazing yep so you know it pretty well i know it pretty decently i'm always learning though always learning i love it a lot really appreciate it and it always surprises me so it could uh be very rewarding or you could be along for just a beautiful day in the woods ian tell us why are you excited uh i first came to the mcleod in may of last year uh and it was the best fishing day of my entire life and so uh, I've made it a goal of mine to return here as much as I uh, physically and financially can. Um, it's like a really special place, the bugs, the nature, the fish, um, and it has a lot of historical significance in fly fishing. Um, so I think it's a very, very special place, uh, and it's almost like a pilgrimage to come back here. It's not about the amount of fish you catch. It's just what you're learning and uh, just enjoying that you're your surroundings and everything appreciating not just the fish but the river and uh it's pretty it's a pretty awesome thing 
As we wade into the water, I find out that the rocks we're walking on are covered with a thin layer of super slippery moss. With my legs weakened from Mount Chester the day before, I spend a lot of today falling into the river. Marcus's friend Ian was quiet yesterday, but on the McLeod, he's really in his element. I hooked into a brown trout. I didn't land it though, so uh, I'm gonna keep trying. Uh, but you know, this river is so beautiful. It's hot out, we're in the water. Um, life is pretty good. We're in about a 2,000 foot deep gorge um, with crystal Listerine turquoise blue water uh, all around us. Granite boulders that are red, green, uh, lush greenery, and granite, uh, granite cliffs on the side. Uh, and it's just an insane contrast. Nobody's fished here in a while, uh, so hopefully uh, we get into some good fish. It's a very technical sport, and the McLeod is a very technical river. Um, you're surrounded by plants that you can snag, underwater snags, uh, strong current, and very slippery rocks, not to mention just uh, executing your fly fishing skills right. Um, it's a tough spot, but it's, it's the spot, um, and it doesn't really get any better than this. Further downriver, I ask our guide Stephen why he thinks the McLeod is such a special river. What really intrigues me and what really has brought into me the McLeod for years on end is uh, the brown trout. They're, uh, they're pretty majestic and sometimes they're hard to find, but when you get into them, you can have a fish of a lifetime. I'm very lucky to do what I love for work, and uh, I, get, I, I just get to experience a lot of different things every day. That's what uh, I love about my job and being outside. You just really get to... Just really connect with nature and see what's going on in our, in our in our nature, you know. And it's being out here every day. You get to you get to really see what's going on as far as hatches and how many people are in their areas and what the fish are doing and what the fish, how many fish are in our system. Like in terms of the health of the McLeod, is it how's it doing? McLeod is actually one of the rivers where I. It's really nice to come to because you don't get a lot of polluted water. It's very, it's a very clean fishery. That's what's nice about it. The, um, for the most part, all the anglers and hikers have a lot of respect for it, and we all appreciate that. Do you consider yourself an environmentalist? I guess all fly fishermen, in some way, shape, or form, are environment environmentalist. Uh, I think we kind of have our fingers and hands and all sorts of uh, professions when you start to think about it. We study the flows of the river, we study bugs, we study fish, so we kind of, uh, we're jack of all trades when it comes to being out here. Um, you find yourself find, always studying water flows, and I mean, it's, uh, you, you really learn, it's not just fishing, it's, uh, it's a whole lot more than fishing. Do you think there's a need for city folks to better understand the actual physicality of the environment? I'd like more people from the city just to kind of realize what's out there and, uh, you know, hire a guide, hire a, a, a book a, a sightseeing trip and just get out there and see, what, see what's out there besides the city because um, a lot of the decisions you guys, Bay Area and people from the city make uh, have a lot to do with what's going on up here. So if you get a firsthand experience on what's going on, you'll have a much more idea of what, what you have a say in.
you know, I, I always say hunting, hunter, uh, fish, fishermen and hunters are the best conser- con- we're the best conservationists out there. Um, so I like to, I'm glad that I have my hands in both ends. So, Why do you think hunters and fishers are the best conservators? Well, because they get out there, they, they, they see everything. They're, they're out there seeing what's really going out in the woods and not just having an opinion. They're, um, they're out there firsthand and not just he- uh, going off what people hear hearsay. So um, if you get a chance, sit down with a, hunt, a, a fly fisherman, a conventional fisherman, a hunter, uh, and just pick their brain. They're not what they seem to be out, you know. There are those guys out there that are uh, wasteful, and but that's a... Uh, that's one guy and not the whole community of uh, outdoorsmen in general. So, To me, it's really weird that there's like this division between environmentalists and then what they call the hook and bullet crowd. Yeah. Like to me, um, isn't it pretty similar? Very, very similar. You know, I'd like to say that we, uh, if we all just went to the table with an open mind, I think we're all more alike than you think. And, uh, you know, just other, it all depends on... Some of us are meat eaters, and some of us are vegetarians, and uh, but we also might have the same point of view. It's, it's not, uh, let's not let that get in between our opinions. So um, I think we're, if you just uh, got us all together and with some open minds, I'm sure we can all work together and figure some good uh, outcomes out for our uh, our society. When Ian. Uh caught a fish you were like yeah the, the fish probably pulled it into the snags oh the fish no they're smart they don't get that big for no reason we all caught and released a few rainbow trout and marcus even got a big brown trout as we're walking along the river on the way out we bump into vince cloward who is the reserves manager how so can what, i help you what do you do here vince well i'm the caretaker which includes a lot of functions from moving the toilet one day to fixing things on the preserve to taking environmental data. We've got a, a probe in the river, so river quality data and angler, you know, angular communications and relations. Some really creative individuals in 1973 came um, from the art school in San Francisco and it helped build this. The California College of the Arts. Yes. So my wife happens to be a graduate of that. Awesome. Yeah. She should come down and visit. Yeah. They basically helped create and the vision and the creativity of building this cabin. I love that. And then after that came the sanctuary? Is simultaneously. So the property was gifted to us from the McLeod River Club, and it's been under a preservation kind of ethic and uh, control of the conservancy since 1973. And how many acres? 5,300 acres, approximately three river miles. It's just stunning. So what have you learned about nature just by being in it every day? Well, I'm not new to this. It's kind of been my MO and my lifestyle forever. But this is one of the most pristine areas. And it's because of the preservation concepts and philosophies here. Um, so it's just, it, it is a wild, wild feeling place. Everything's protected here, preserved. So, so when you wake up in the morning, do you like blink and say, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here? Yeah, it's pretty nice. It's a, this is like in my blood. This is what I do, and I am proud to be here. And people who visit, the, the number one thing they say to me is, dude, you're living the dream. What's the secret? You honor your passion and you set the path. You have to put things in place to be here. It t- it's building blocks. You have to say, I want to be there, so I'm committed to being there, and what am I going to do to make that goal? And those are kind of the practical things in life. 
but remain true. It took me a couple of years to get back here to be near my kids and be at this river, which I love, and I've got a whole background of river conservation. So for me, it was just about putting the building blocks in place. How can we get rivers back in people's hearts as opposed to making it an intellectual discussion? You gotta be there, you gotta put your toe in it. I mean, you gotta feel it, you gotta live it. Um, we protect things that we love, and it's a passionate thing, it's ingrained in ourselves, and it's all about experiences. So we have to welcome them to experience it so that they can, in turn, become stewards of it. I found the day very intense, like just being with the river. The river's <clears throat> just got this energy, this flow, it's never ending. I guess I would ask you what that intensity was about for you to reflect on that. I hadn't spent a full day on a river in a long time, and it was, it was intense in a good way, just a lot of sensory input. I think you re reconnected with water, and I think we're about water as humans naturally, and it's just that magnificent, particularly pure crystal clear water is just a kind of reminder that this is, this is a special place. This is what it should all look like, and that's the, the benefit of the preserve. Do you see that effect on people that come through here? Does it, does it have a transformative impact? Yeah, it's not always articulated. They have to sit with it a little bit. But the general comment is, wow, this is a special place. So even if you can't identify what that specialness is, it, it has an impact. They come back year to year. You look at the logs. This is a place that is special. And they connect to it in so many different levels depending on the person that they return and, and love this place and support it. Putting land aside seems like the most powerful thing that we can do. This will never be built on, this will never be developed. It will be here for time immemorial, which is what you want, what I want. Today I found myself you know, wondering why I hadn't caught a fish. Isn't that the purpose? And it took a lot of, lot of zen to get to the place of, you know what? I'm here just to be in nature, not, not to constantly worry about if I've caught a fish or not, or, wow, someone else caught a lot of fish, why am I not catching a fish? And then, I guess part of it is just realizing you need to have skill to do these things. You can't expect, I can't expect to um, catch a fish if I have absolutely no idea how to catch a fish, but somehow... I just did think, oh, I'll be good at this. I'll be able to catch a fish. At the same time, I had a fantastic day just being out in nature, and I wouldn't have done it if it hadn't been for fly fishing. So my recommendation is try it out. You'll love spending the day by the rivers, and you'll be completely exhausted, which is I'm just looking forward to a nice meal. <laughs> Thank you to Marcus and Ian for being such great company, climbing Chester and fly fishing on the McLeod, and for Stephen Fry for being so patient in guiding us on the river, and for Vince Cloward for spending day and night stewarding such a remote stretch of the McLeod River. What I took away from this week's episode was how tangible and present the force of nature is when you encounter her up close and personal. Being on Mount Chester, I really did feel transported to another world, the scale and perspective I carried with me were completely altered by the mountain. Looking down 10,000 feet to the valley floor through the ever-changing layers of clouds rearranged my equilibrium so that I lost all sense of the world below. 
the mountain became everything. In the river the next day, the power of even the smallest fish overwhelmed me. There was so much energy, force, and vitality to the river that when it eventually knocked me over, I didn't even try and regain my footing. I just wanted to float. The river keeps flowing with such determination and strength that I felt powerless in a way that I had not experienced before. I wasn't trying to fight back, and yet I was also not giving in. There's a dynamic tension that exists between nature and us, and the McLeod helped me see it anew. I also saw how much nature we could pack into just a few days. Now I have even less of an excuse to be indoors. It was so great to be able to do this trip with Marcus. Thank you for looking out for me. As we drove back through Redding, California, a forest fire was starting to rage out of control. Our thoughts are with all those who are currently battling the hundreds of fires across the globe from Greece to Sweden to Yosemite. Next week, we're going to look at the future of food. Please like our show on the Apple Podship Earth page. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jared Blumenfeld. Have a great week. Thank you.